Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, joingelt.com. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder. We're going to be talking about building, scaling, financing, and all of that good stuff that we like to hear. You know, it's a founder that, you know, has been really building a rocket ship, you know, in the Indonesia area. And, uh, you know, something that was born out of YC, you know, they raised, you know, a bunch of money and a remarkable journey. So, Without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Stephen Wong Soreggio. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me today. So quite quite the international background that you have, Steve. You know, obviously born in Frankfurt, you know, in Germany, but then, you know, raised in Jakarta, Bay Area, you know, a little bit of everything. Why not? So give us a walk <laughs> through memory lane. How was life growing up, Steve? Well, I do have a multicultural background, as you can see where I was born, where I was raised, and where I used to study to receive my bachelor's and master's degree. But a bit of background, my dad is an engineer, uh, was an engineer, actually. Now he's a businessman, but was an engineer. So back in the days, um, German school with engineering is quite huge in Indonesia because our um, second president was actually graduated uh, having an engineering degree from Germany. So that's why back then my dad came to Germany and she's been dating my mom, uh, my mom for, I would say, uh, from high school till he graduated. Then after both graduated, they got married and that's how I was born there. And I used to raise, um, well, they sent me over to my grandma's house first in Samarang, one of the smaller city in Indonesia. And I used to live there for two years before my parents came back to Indonesia for good. And uh, they raised me until I was 17 in Jakarta. So some of my aunties married German. So I do have German Indos cousin and I'm Indonesian. And I used to study in the U.S. So I would say somewhere in my blood, there is part of me being like German Indonesians and American as well, because I used to live in the U.S. for six years. So how old were you when, when, when your parents were living abroad for two years? Um, 
Well, I was from zero years old till two years okay. old. Yes. And they came back to Indonesia for good and took me to Jakarta. And I, I was raised there till I was 17 years old. So, so tell us about the experience also of coming to study to the U.S. Um, it's quite exciting. My parents are kind of like adventurous, like parents. So since I was a kid, they always took me to have a break and just exploring the world. Uh, came to the new places that we haven't been. So the U.S., actually, I've been there before I actually came there for for like pursuing my bachelor's and master's a couple of times. And I would say at class 10, my dad um, asked me, of course, he wanted me to go to Germany because he is to study there, right? And uh, it's actually cheaper because I was born there. So I do have some privileges to uh, probably get the subsidy from the government to have a, a school there. But then um, he's very open-minded and he asked me which are the city or like the country that you would like to go when you're in university. And um, the the countries that struck me the most is the U.S. And that's how I decided in uh, class 10. And since then, I started to take TOEFL tests. As you know, international students need to take that test. So I took some preparations, SAT and, and so on before I applied to uh, the U.S. education. So that was the story. <laughs> That's amazing. And I do remember those TOEFL tests. I mean, it was kind of weird talking to a computer. I mean, that was like <laughs> uh, something else. But uh, but anyhow, in your case, something that um, that was interesting is that what ended up becoming the concept of, of what you guys are doing now with Super, uh, it was something that has incubated over time. Because when you were, you know, a little younger, you know, you go, you went to, you know, little towns, you saw the the, the disparity when it came to prices and, and things like that when it came on to the retail side of things. So so what happened really there? What were you seeing? Uh, it was in the family, you know, also the retail, you know, um, a business and that segment. So what were you seeing and how would you say that that incubated over time? Hmm. My convictions of building super came when I was a kid. I grew up in a retail family business, which they mainly serve after second tier series up to Indonesia, rural areas. When I was a little boy, I used to travel with my dad to sit at this small town. And one of my greatest findings is that life is just so unfair in those areas, whereas the GDP per capita could be lower than our capital city by 3x up to 5x. But the cost of the goods, it's more expensive in the range of 20 up to 200%. This actually are the calling when I was a kid and when I was a teenager, that someday I would like to go back to help these folks. And finally, I'm very fortunate to do it with Super. And four years ago, actually, before we started, of course, um, we're helping people, but we're going to have to make sure that the business is going to be sustainable in future. We've seen, we've, we have seen a huge opportunity down here, whereas there are the first generations of e-commerce juggernauts that they have been around in the market for a decade plus and billions of US dollars been poured to their balance sheet. However, they can only capture 5 to 10% out of Indonesia's offline retail market. Second of all, we've seen that there is a phenomenon based on the World Bank data is that the propensity of Indonesia's middle class income is immense. 
marrying this like two biggest opportunity that is so humongous. We started super with a huge total addressable market that is 200 billion USD. And since then we've been, um, of course there's up and down in the company. It's never been smooth, but we've been able to progressing for the past five years. And we'll go into detail just in, in a little bit, but I know that one thing that was pivotal, you know, especially for this company to come to life was becoming the third company, you know, from Indonesia that will be accepted into Y Combinator. So how do you guys land in, into Y Combinator? How was that, you know, journey of, you know, submitting the application, putting together, you know, like the idea and, 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 and landing there? Well, I see back in the days was like gunning for a moon. <laughs> That's how it feels when you're in building an Indonesian startup. I was the third company and the first Indonesian consumer tech company that made it there. But I knew YC since I was in college because I used to hear all of their podcasts. So um, back then, there is this one partner. Um, his name is Gustav. And, and he's, big, he's basically the one who lead the South Asia and we are becoming a close friend. He came to made a tour in Indonesia. And I didn't know the deadline. And I was late for two months. And I pitched the idea to him when he was in Indonesia and he was excited. And he said that, hey, uh, I know the chance to getting in is very small because it's going to be late applications, but why don't you just try? And nothing to lose, right? Just build out the applications. It's like uh, you're, you're building and you're composing a personal statement like you want to go to university. But now your personal statement, it belongs to your life and your startup and it has to be intertwined so once you submitted those applications i think they came back in the next two to three weeks to send me an email with a bunch of questions and i answered those and two weeks after that email i got the invitations to fly to mountain view <laughs> and then as you know yc is only 10 minutes interview and it took me like 30 hours to fly there with 12 hours back of jet lag and on the second day, um, I got the interview and yeah, fortunately we, we got in and, um, we we're very blessed, um, to, to be in, in, in those programs because it's probably one of the most pivotal moments that I've learned a lot, how to build the product, how to reach the product to market fit, how to build a proper company uh, that can sustain and lasting for uh, years and years. So what was the um the concept of super or the idea you know prior to um white combinator and then once you guys you know had graduated from white combinator how do you think that the the idea or the company shaped up um you know the, like the before and after what was that like Sure when we before we came in um we already knew YC it's always been the best coach to help the startup find the product to market fit but one thing that we forget once we are in the cohort is that the market has their own behavior and you got to adapt your product and app based on the market. And Super was born in YC, whereas my peers trying to preserve brain, you know, and some of other dudes trying to build an AI, a very fancy one. So uh, we do have a tendency, oh, this is just a villager's app. Let's try to make it cool, right? We are trying to build a Salesforce-like feature in the app and uh, lead like trackers for all of these agents down there. And we launched it in Indonesia and 
was not a surprise. We didn't grow at all on the first 12 months, which uh, the sales at, at the highest would only hit a thousand USD, right? To give you some um, a concept about what we are doing, we're building social commerce for tier two, tier three cities and rural. It's a bit different in Indonesia compared to the US. In the US, most people probably have known and uh, are able to use Amazon. But then in Indonesia, despite the internet penetrations that is so high, up to 80%, but the e-commerce transactions only 5%. Why is that? Because the first gen e-commerce market, 80% of them or the majority of that market is just only in Jakarta, which is our capital city. But then once you're going to the second biggest cities in Indonesia, the GDP per capita is already much lower. And imagine if you're going to the mall and having someone bring 10 bucks and two bucks, they'll behave differently, right? When you're shopping, like in the mall. Same thing in rural, that these folks are not used to transact via app and website. They need a people that can stimulate them to purchase. So what we do, we empower the most advanced folks in the rural, like the one who own Waru, we call it Waru, or small SMEs, like uh, people who own like a community leader who own a small stores or individual resellers that will aggregate the demand of their community. And mainly we are selling fast-moving consumer goods or FMCG and cosmetics right now. So I guess uh, for the people that are listening to really get it, what ended up being the business model on how you guys make money here? Sure. Just imagine that we are the Walmart of Indonesia without having a presence of retail store. That's the best way to put it. So imagine that there is this like one guy in the village act like a Walmart to aggregate the demands of their community because these are the most advanced individuals that will be able to use a smartphone and trusting that the apps will bring them more benefit rather than they're doing the offline activities to purchase the goods, right? So how are we making money? It comes out into three things. One is we do charge marketplace fee for sellers when they are selling it to our buyers. Um, second, if the gross margin is high enough, sometimes we get exclusivity. So we run a 1P model, whereas we take inventory and then we crop profit from the gross margin that we purchase as the COGS and from sales to COGS will get our gross margin. Thirdly, we have been having um, initiative to improve the margin for the past two years into two channels. One is launching our own private label. And second is actually we are acquiring another company, private label company. And this private label running in fast-moving consumer goods or FMCG. So that's how we are making money. So I guess uh, in your guys' case, it was not easy, you know, to achieve product market fit. You know, it took, uh, it took a little bit of time and uh, you needed to really tackle and get it right on the offline side of things before you would even, you know, tackle the online side of things. So how is that possible? Walk us through that. Well, it was like an airplane runway kind of directions <laughs> when we came back from YC. And for the next 12 months, it feels like we've been trying a lot of things, we scratch our code and recode everything. But one thing that we didn't kind of like digest when YC uh, taught us is that your market has their own behavior. You really need to understand your users, which we didn't kind of like take that into our considerations. We're just thinking that, hey, 
if we are building a great product of very high tech, people would, would get it and would, would use it. But that's not the case. Um, in Indonesia, most of people in the rural and villages, they are willing to purchase if their friend is purchasing. Or they're willing to do something if their friends stimulating to do something. So the effect of this social capital is very massive over there. That's the thing that we've realized after 12 months we've been running the way we did, um, the way that we run. So since then, we moved the backward. We moved backward to connecting the dots. Means that we launched the offline activities to make sure that these folks understand why, how and these folks are transacting on our platform. It can be just through like WhatsApp PDF or something like that. But then they understand that Super is going to provide you with FMCG goods. You can actually transact to us. And once they'll be able to transact, we migrate them to use the app. So that's the best way um, to put it. Or the metaphor, Alejandro, is that uh, we know that I would say organic fried rice is going to be healthier than the normal fried rice, right? But then if you're trying to force people to eat organic fried rice, probably they would persist that. So what we're trying to do on that 12 months onward till today is that how to make a healthier fried rice first before you're actually uh, slowly giving them the organic um, fried rice. So that's probably the best way to put it. And, and since then, we have reached product to market fit. The retention rate has been very, very healthy. I think over 12 months, um, the cohort retentions can hit around 60 to 70%. And the CAC is very low. I think we uh, manage around like one bucks or sometimes below $1. And the payback period is below one month. So that's when we have started to change and moving the backward how to build um, the, the app activity is starting from the offline to the online. It has given us a lot of, um, I would say, light to grow the business since then. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's, again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. So when, when you say light to grow the business, at what point do you see the light coming through? Because, I mean, you were for two to three years, you know, in the desert. So at what point do you finally turn the corner? Well, the first year is just like we're building a leaky, a leaky bucket business. It's just you pour water, it keeps coming up, right? Uh, you pour water, users up, retention's only like 5% on like 30 days. And then you realize that, hey, like what's going on? People are joining, but they didn't want to stay. They, they kept like churning. And then we've realized the offline needs to work first before the online. 
once we have a good retention on the offline and slowly migrating them to the online, the online will be solid as well because they already understand with us and we already got trust. There are differences of people using social media in Indonesia. As you know, we are very outspoken in um, all of the social media channel. Uh, but then it doesn't require any money transactions. But once it goes with e-commerce, there is trust over there. And in Indonesia, the best way to penetrate after the villages and rural to build the trust is through the offline channel. And that's what we did. And to give you a more in-depth what we did on the offline, Aliandro, is that uh, despite we are using social media the way we are trying to acquire the users, we are doing more offline activities, such as we do offline roadshow. We met with the local leaders to make like a, uh, like a small seminars in the villages to introduce super and getting into some of the WhatsApp group in where they are in, trying to uh, circulate the PDF of what super is going to benefit your life here and there. And slowly the words of mouth uh, been growing till today and it has given us a better retention rate. And that's where I was seeing light when the retention suddenly goes from like 30 days from 5% up to like 80%, right? And then um, the retention on the third month back in the days probably like 3% and then now it's like can be like 75% or like 70%. Then that's when I know, oh, there is a light here. This is like the, the way to crack the market. And then we just have to replicate the way that we did over there, even though it's, of course, uh, going to be like slower than um, you're doing it. It's just all online if online would work. But now the online does not work. So we're going to have to move the other way. In hindsight, I would say um, cracking the rural area uh, requires a lot of effort. And I would say um, it has to be step by step. It cannot be like a hockey stick growth. But then it's also giving some resiliencies on the business because that's actually the barrier to entry as well. Now, you guys started as the underdog because most of the companies that uh, that you were going up against, you know, had rates, you know, 10 times, you know, where, where you guys were at. So uh, just for the people that are listening, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, we have raised uh, 106 million USD to date. So, so starting as the underdog, you know, and getting in front of investors, you know, I'm sure that they were a little worried. Hey, you know, these guys are now looking to raise money and they're going to go up against all these players. So how were you able to first and foremost, you know, silence, you know, those types of concerns or address those types of concerns even better? And then how was that experience of going, you know, from one, you know, financing round to the next? The hardest part on my journey was during the seed round and Series A, because seed and Series A, um in startup was like in the combinations whereas the story the team and early tractions and you couldn't really show them like a lot of like number yet because the company is not uh, as big yet to go into the series b and c where the b and c are going to talk about numbers right profitability efficiencies and more and they start not relying on the team they want to see like the team that can execute well so back in the days, the competitions was in Indonesia startup. There are four typical like founders. The first is the U.S. returnees like me. The second is like local founders who grown up here and built a startup. And uh, the the third and the fourth is basically whether they've been they they were like an expat working in uh, unicorns or a big company and they started the company. And the fourth is their um 
foreigners and trying their luck to build a company in Indonesia. And my competitions are with the third, which is uh, more competitive than the first, because the first usually like me, they came back and they built a startup. But people in the third, they have a credible background. They went to good school. They went to some unicorns e-commerce in the region and been able to pull like global investment to back that startup. And back in the days, I'm the only one who launched outside of Jabodetabek area or Jakarta capital city, whereas the rest of the competitions are launching it in Jakarta. So all the investors that I've met, they actually um, declined and basically they didn't really look at us like seriously because um, the, the message was just like, hey, you're like an IT league grad why you make your life like hard to launch this thing outside of Jakarta, right? And you don't have that DNA. Little that they knew, I've spent some of my part of my life, probably half of it in the rural because I used to grow up in um, in my family business and I used to live in Semarang. So I kind of like know how does this dynamic going on? There is part of me like being there. And my co-founder is also local. So it, it was quite hard. It was quite hard. But um, those hard days has built the business since the beginning to become more resilient than the rest of the players. What we did is that Aliandro, the product that we sold is slightly different from the uh, first gen e-commerce that usually that they are selling. While the first gen or our biggest was biggest competitors back then tried to sell a multinational or international famous FMCG product, we're trying to partner with their contenders or our local provincial players that they could give us a better gross margin as well as um, term of payment. So we don't require a lot of capital to actually actually gain a market share during the first two years and three years. And second of all, while they are relying more on the multinational supply chain founders, we're relying on the local freelancer truck drivers and the local founders that would make our supply chain cost 70% cheaper compared to using the multinational or the national, I would say, um, supply chain that is quite famous. And lastly, slowly we've been acquiring these provincial players to be partnering with them like much closer. The IP from the private label that we acquired from um, the sellers or the principles that we've been working is going to become a barrier to entry to enter the business. So um, it was a hard start, but looking back, I would say it was there for us to be here today. And then being also a foreign company, right? Because you guys are in Indonesia. How were you able to also get, because I'm sure that there's a lot of uh, founders that are outside of the U.S., you know, also wondering this this front. And that is, how were you able to get a U.S.-based firm like New Enterprise Associates, NEA, to jump in and, 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 and get on board here with you guys? Sure. Um, it, it was a long journey, though. <laughs> We've been knowing them. People who led our Series B, uh, SoftBank, We've known them for two years before they let our out. We've known NEA for two years to three years, I guess, before um, they actually um, made an investment to Super. So it takes a while. But looking back, what we did was, number one, that all of the founder needs to do is that when you're building a startup, you're building a product and try to reach the product to market fit. You don't build a startup to race. This is like two different things. So first, 
build your business and ask whether this is something that you're going to love in the next like 30 to 50 years because the day is going to be like very 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 hard and uh i mean if you're uh sane then probably you wouldn't do this right because you're insane and you love what you do then you do this and those are the only individuals that can i would say persevere throughout those like harsh day that's like number one and second you gotta think a bit smarter when you have an options when the business starts growing to find a good angel some of this good angel can become a good partner from the big pc that's what i've got during my first journey and probably the fund wouldn't chip in because you're too small anyways but if the partner chip in to you you would have like friends right in within like um their ecosystem that probably a partner from like a bigger firms and here and there and that's how i got the second one that's also uh, an ex partner of a big firm in uh, globally and then to start a new fund in uh regional called insignia and i knew i see from him uh, well not knowing i knew i see before but he's the one who encouraged me to go to yc and then i went to yc and then once you go to yc you have a lot of like network after yc basically and as indonesian startup and out there by being a yc startup you got to stamp right oh YCSN is like US investors. And since then, we pulled a lot of like US investors, such as uh, Jay Z is the, uh, with the AI firm. We got uh, B Capital um, as also, if you, if you can consider SoftBank as like a US slash like global investors, as well as NEA as well. So it's going to snowball like in the end. But again, in within those rounds, you got to understand that fundraising success is not a business success so in every round you will present like your projections you also need to um, tackle and fulfill whatever you promised to investors in your b therefore they can tell a good story for people who are going to lead the c and snowballing till you're going to ipo so that's that was the long story short about my journey in raising capital yeah i always say that uh, raising money is not a milestone it's a stepping stone because then the hard work, you know, comes right after. Now, in your case, you know, like to, to raise money, obviously you, you need to share a vision, right? So when we're talking about the vision, imagine if you were to go to sleep tonight, Steve, and you wake up in a world where the vision of super is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, it's just as simple. At the beginning of the day of super, when we did a survey, how we are going to build the business model and the app. I met this young mom in the rural and she told me with a one US dollars in her hand, she could only purchase a cup of milk for their kids per day. And our dream and vision of super is fairly simple. We would like to democratize the price in Indonesia rural areas, therefore the price could be cheaper or probably someday would be the same like people who are actually in the capital city. Therefore, the same mom with the same amount of money, she would be able to purchase more milks for their kids and save some money to educate their kids to go to college someday. So that's probably the uh, the broad visions of uh, the company in the next few years ahead. Now, when we're thinking about the... Um... The, I mean, we're talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past and do it with a lens of reflection. If I was to put you into a time machine 
And I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where, you know, you were thinking about what to do, you know, what, what, what company you wanted to, uh, to bring to life, you know, like you were in the process of figuring out, you know, what super, you know, could be or what it would look like. If you could have a sit down with that younger self and give that younger Steve one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, given what you know now? Um, first, talk to, talk to your users and do not make an assumptions. That's number one. Number two, if I would probably want to comment for folks who are building the business in developing nations outside of the U.S. is that if you used to study in the U.S., don't ever set the bar that these people in your country would behave like Americans, right? Because the GDP in a nations will reflect civilizations of the people. It doesn't mean that it's good and it's bad. It's just you need to make sure that the product would reach to the product to market fit before you'll be able to creating more values down the line to be able to build a great business that can be very impactful. So try to make the simplest product first. Don't waste time to make uh, crazy features like A, B, C, D, and then you launch and it didn't work. And trying to make your product is too advanced in, in terms of the technology plans like putting an AI, machine learning, whereas the users might not understand it. And uh, I would say thirdly is that um, before you start, you really got to ask yourself whether these things are the thing that you would do for the next 30 to 50 years. As I said during uh, the podcast is that I never knew, Aliandro, that this would be like this hard. <laughs> I mean, it's hard and rewarding, but it's super hard, right? Um, and the only people who can persevere, again, is the one who really love like, what they are doing. So I would say those are the three things that I would probably, um, I'm still going to re-ask the third things, but yeah, I'm here now and I really love what I'm doing, even though it's hard uh, and uh, why I keep thriving because I love what I'm doing. There you go. There you go. So Steve, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Please visit our website at www.superapp.id. And you can also search Aplikasi Super in our LinkedIn to see like our daily life in the office, as well as our social media in Instagram, as well as YouTube. And uh, you can always reach me back at steven at nusantara.technology. Thank you for watching. Amazing. Thank you so much, Steve. Really appreciate having you on the show. It has been an honor to have you with us. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.